All right, so we're continuing our series on the fruits of the Spirit this week, and <clears throat> we're, we're basing these all on the fruits of the Spirit listed in Galatians chapter 5. You might recognize if you've been here for like any amount of time that we usually preach through books of the Bible verse by verse. Uh, this series of sermons on the fruit of the Spirit is an exception to that, mostly because as Jim and I have been planning, we thought after the year or two of, of COVID shakeup in churches, we thought it'd be good first to look at and study some of the foundational things with our church. And that's what we've been doing over the last year about what we believe, why we believe it. And now we're moving into a phase where we not want to start looking at how we take those foundations and how we apply them as we interact with the world around us, what that looks like. I thought we'd start there this morning, Galatians 5. I'll just read verses 22 and 23 to refresh us just a little bit. It says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So, so far we've covered love and joy. And so this week we're going to talk about peace. And specifically, we're going to talk about what peace is, what peace is not, and what peace looks like in your life. And to answer those questions, I want to sit for a while in a specific text in your Bible, Ephesians chapter 2. Now this, as I've said before, is, is my favorite section, my favorite chapter in the whole Bible, hands down. Uh, mostly because of the way that it had a profound effect on my life, specifically the first half of this chapter, and, and a profound effect on the way that I look back on my life. Let's go ahead and, and turn to chapter 2 in Ephesians, if you have your Bible with you. We'll put it up here on the screen as well. But I want to start down in verse 14, about halfway through the chapter. But before we do that, let's ask for help. Uh, Father, Father, we come before you this morning and we come before your word with humble hearts. We want to approach this every time we do with an attitude of expectation. That you can teach us something new and beautiful about yourself, about your love. So we know that we need your assistance to understand things too wonderful for our understanding and graces too big for us even to imagine. We trust that we'll see all of that in your word this morning. And so it's for your glory and for your name's sake that we pray for help. Open our eyes, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, look with me, if you will, at my favorite chapter in the Bible, Ephesians 2. Let's start in verse 14. It says this, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off. And peace to those who are near. Okay, so there's a lot in those four verses there to digest. Uh, But before we dig in too much, we want to ask ourselves, if we're going to be talking about peace, now how are we going to define it? How do we define peace? Now I think 
that we normally think of peace primarily as the opposite of war. We think of peace as a lack of conflict in our lives. That doesn't seem to be what the Bible is using as a definition for peace. And understanding that might actually be helpful for us as we try and take this concept of peace and realistically apply the concept to our relationships. Because if we take on the idea uh, of having peace as a complete lack of conflict, then peace in our lives is going to be impossible. Now, we actually can have healthy conflict. It is possible, even if it's not comfortable. There are almost always times when we do not agree with each other. And conflict, uh, although it's uncomfortable, does not have to mean that we cannot have peace. Many good relationships contain healthy conflict. An example of that would be the first time I had dinner with Jim Fickert. (laughs) I I warned him I might use this story. The first time that, that... my, my family sat down uh, for dinner with Jim and Esther and their kids. Uh, we had just started attending communion church. Uh, we had just come here. We had hopped around in a few other churches and really didn't have a home. And right away, um, we came to a service and we felt like it was home. We felt like this was a big family. And all of a sudden, we were really excited because we said, well, actually, they're actually preaching the Bible here. But also, it feels like a family. And we, we liked the music. We liked the people. People invited us over to their houses right away. And Nicole and I felt like oh, we're home. And so we go over to have dinner with the Fickerts. And it was great. We had a great conversation after the kids went off to play. The kids were like all little at this point. This is a while ago. Um, but Jim and Esther and Nicole and I sat down at the dinner table, and we were just talking, and we had this great conversation, I thought. Um, and Jim, Jim and I started talking about baptism and communion, and while we held mostly the same views, there was like one point of sharp disagreement. And it was a sharp disagreement. Uh, and that's where we spent some time. We spent some time talking, we spent some time disagreeing, and discussing how we both came to our conclusions. This was, to be clear, a point of conflict. Now, my poor wife, in, in watching this, <laughs> on, on the way home, I, I, can't, I just keep remembering the, the way on the way home, she just had this heartbroken look of like, do we have to find a new church now? <laughs> you just got in a fight with a pastor, and I really liked this place. <laughs> What happened? Um, Which came as a surprise to me because after that conversation, I wanted to be part of this church more than ever. Like I was all in after that little disagreement with him. Um, And there's a couple reasons for that. Um, But a big part of that for me was that in my background in churches, um, I had never been around people who would care enough about what they believe and care enough about you to disagree with you. And that's, and that's rare. Well, I was rarely challenged before on my beliefs. Only by a few people had ever really challenged me before, and they were never pastors. But also, I saw on the other side of that, I also saw uh, Jim's pastoral heart in that. And what I mean is that he was willing to sit through 
and help me sift through my conclusions and show me where he had come to his. He took the time to do that, and it was uncomfortable. It might be less uncomfortable for him, but it was uncomfortable for my wife, I can say that. In all honesty, if you were watching us converse that evening, you thought maybe we had a fight. We didn't raise our voices, but we were both pretty strong in our convictions. And by the way, Jim was right and I was wrong. I can only say that because he's not here this weekend. (laughs) The point I'm trying to get to is that conflict is going to happen. Conflict, if, if you care about people, conflict is going to happen. No, not yelling, not screaming, and definitely not hostility. But we have to realize that sometimes we are wrong. And if we admit that we're wrong sometimes, then it's quite possible that other people are wrong sometimes too. And then when we have this group of people who are wrong sometimes, we're going to have conflicts with the truth. We're going to come up to areas and ideas that we have to submit to the truth. And that is uncomfortable. Now, traditionally, when it comes to conflict, people do one of two things when they want to deal with conflict. Um, One is we run from conflict, right? We keep any conflict at an arm's length, usually ostracize the people that we know that we would come into conflict with. We don't come into those, we don't step into those conversations. We don't let the conversation go there. We don't spend enough time with people to be able to even have the conflict. The other one is that we pretend the conflict doesn't exist. When we have conflict, we just kind of brush past it. We avoid the issue and hope that avoiding it, and by avoiding it, that that will bring peace somehow to the situation. Like if we neglect something long enough, it will heal, and then we don't have to deal with it. Well, that, both of those are all fine, but neither of them deal with the problem. They don't actually resolve any problems at any point. And if we're to progress in life, if we want to heal, if we want to move forward in our lives and and become better, we have to deal and resolve conflict. So there has to be a better way. So if peace is then not a lack of conflict, what is peace? Or better yet, what does peace look like? How do we manifest the fruit of that peace in our life? Uh, technically, if we want to get exact to what if the text in Ephesians is talking about this morning, that word that is used for peace in the Greek, in which it's originally written, um, means to tie, to join together something that wasn't whole. Literally, to wrap around and tie something together. So bringing two things that were separated and making them whole again and binding them as such. That's what that word means. I love that. It means specifically wholeness, being made whole, when all essential parts are joined back together. So peace, in the biblical sense then, when we're talking about it in the Bible, peace is being brought back together with, with what we were separated from, being made whole. And another word that we would use for that would be reconciliation, right? Reconciliation is bringing back things that used to be separated. 
in kind of defining this, I think it's best for us to look right at the text that we just read in, in Ephesians 2.14. Verse 14 says, He himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. And so if that peace is manifested in him, if, if Jesus then is our peace, then it's going to be manifested in his life and in the work that he did. So what were the things that he did that brought peace? We can answer that with a million different things if we read through the Gospels. But if we just look at our text this morning in, in Ephesians 2, we see pointed out really clearly right after that, that, that he broke down walls of separation, both between God and man and between man and his fellow man. He broke down walls between Israelites and Gentiles, and that's what it's talking about in this chapter. The things that separated them, he demolished. One of those walls of separation being the commands expressed in ordinances. I want to talk about that for a minute. I expound on what that really means. So what he's referring to, the ordinances of ceremony and cleanliness that the Israelites were to abide by. Those things were abolished, the text says, on the cross. And that is why we, we do not follow all the rules and ordinances prescribed in the Old Testament. Not anymore. Not after Christ came to reconcile. Now, that doesn't mean that we take our Old Testament in the first part of it, the law, and just throw it away. The law contains much of what we still must abide by to live good lives and constantly be working at the process of removing sin from our lives. The law shows us what holiness looks like. It paints a picture for us. So we can still apply it to our lives without, without having to abide by all the ordinances of washing and cleanliness that are listed in Leviticus, right? Those things were there for a purpose, and the, one of the purposes of those things was to separate the Israelites from other nations. The idea of the law was to make the, these people, this group of people, so different, so removed, so other, another word for that would be holy, so removed from everyone else that they would stand out. And as Jesus comes through that nation, he does away with that separation. That's a beautiful thing. And that's why we don't throw out the whole law, but we don't have to abide by those ordinances anymore. But he, as he died, he tore down those separations. That's what it's talking about in Ephesians chapter 2. It's fascinating if you've ever taken any time uh, to study the Jewish tabernacle or the Jewish temple. Um, it is, it's a fascinating structure. And that structure is built of walls and gates. And they separate groups from each other. Um, there is a, a court of the Gentiles. The, the outermost court would be people that weren't Israelites could be in, right? And then there's a wall with several gates. And only Israelites could pass beyond that wall, that separation. And beyond that, there's a court for women. And there was a court for, the, there's an area for the priests, right? The, the centermost area is, is just for the priests to be able to enter. And in the middle of that area, or towards the back of that area, there's a giant curtain that separates from the ceiling all the way to the floor 
big, thick curtain, and that was the final separation between priests and God. So the whole system of the Jewish temple is designed as a visual picture of separation. And God did this on purpose. This is his design. But that separation is a physical picture for us of a spiritual reality. And what I mean is sin separates us from God. Sin separated us from God. And then sin separated us from each other. Ephesians says that there is a dividing wall of hostility. Hostility between God and man and between man and his brothers and sisters. What verse 15 says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So what he's talking about is separating the, the separation of the Gentiles and the Jews as two separate groups and Christ dying to make them one. So Jesus makes peace then. says, so making peace. So Jesus makes peace. He creates peace by taking those that are separated or walled off and reconciling them, tying them together and making them whole again. So once we see peace then as a reconciling to wholeness, we want to see what peace means to different areas of our life. We want to be able to apply that peace then. The first thing we need to figure out is what peace with God means. Secondly, we need to figure out what peace means in regards to our relationships, to our fellow man. And third, we need to talk about what peace with the wider world means as we engage it. Okay, so number one, what peace with God means. This one is first, because it's of, it is of first importance. Right? We can argue uh, for the parameters that God sets for us, right? We can argue that those actually cause us and our families to thrive. Uh, we can talk till we're blue in the face about how uh, better lives and better ways to live our lives um, are, are proven through our Christian walk. But if there is eternity, right, if there is something greater than what we can see and touch, then that thing has to be dealt with. That's the thing we have to deal with first. We can't put the, the cart in front of the horse. Because if there is something beyond this life, then what good would it do for us to start making this short little life any better? So what do we do with that? One of the aspects of the gospel or the good news of Jesus is that he came, like our text said, to reconcile us to him. But by its definition, reconciliation cannot happen unless there is already a separation. We have to admit that there's a problem that forces us to accept at some point that we're not okay on our own. At some point in our life, we have to come to a point where we accept and admit that we're not well by ourselves. We make mistakes. We hurt other people. 
we ourselves are the cause of the hostility in our relationships. And that hostility isn't just against each other. Ultimately, that hostility is against God. If God created us to be good, right, and we keep choosing wrong things and being drawn away from him to wrong things, if by default we choose things that hurt us, then we are the problem. But if we ourselves are the problem, he himself is our peace. God didn't just leave us to solve our problems on our own. He didn't ask us to clean up our mess on our own. He stepped into our mess. He stepped into his own creation to solve our problem himself. But he didn't leave it at that. He actually taught his followers the right way to live and the right motivation to have. So in other words, peace with God cannot mean, like I've, I've heard so many times, um, me and God are good. We have an agreement. I've heard this so many times before. You know, you, Andrew, you go to church and all that, but I, me, and, me and God, we're okay. We've, I've, I've made an agreement with him. And I'm like, how did you do that? Because are you hearing of... But that's something that we kind of push ourselves, we push ourselves back to. We, we'd like to figure out that, like, I've got the God thing figured out. I don't need some structure outside of myself to dictate to me how I'm going to deal with God. I'm just going to deal with God himself. And that would be nice if you could meet him face to face and you could do that. Completely lost on my notes, I'm sorry. I'll find it eventually. Talk amongst yourselves. Okay, here, all right. So it doesn't mean, having peace with God doesn't mean that we can say, okay, I'm good with God, I'm pretty much a good person, and then at the end of my life, God will make everything right. As if God's just going to weigh out your good deeds versus your bad deeds and go, eh, yeah, you're okay. That's actually a really prideful thing to say. My good, weeds out, my good deeds uh, outweigh my bad deeds. That's not actually what the Bible tells us. That's not what we believe at all. Peace with God, then, actually means accepting his action to make peace. So if you couldn't clean up your mess on your own, if you're not enough on your own, and God stepped in and took care of it, then you have to submit to his terms of peace. You don't get to dictate what he's going to do for you. He's already done it. Peace with God means submitting to his work of reconciliation. There's no way around it. You have to submit to Christ. Okay, but secondly, now, what does it mean? What does peace mean to, to, what does it mean to bring peace to our relationships? With family and friends and people that we have around us. Because then if we have peace, we can bring peace. And this one is second for a reason. First, we saw that what God was willing to do to reconcile with us. We see this great act of kindness towards sinners and Jesus on the cross. He's willing to descend from his throne to a manger and then to a cross. And in that, he sets the bar pretty high. But Romans 12 has this beautiful section that, that's called the, the marks of a true Christian. 
That's not in the text, but that's your subheading as you read it. And in the marks of a true Christian, there is a section in that that's very specifically about relationships. It says, uh, it's 12, 14. Romans 12, 14. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So if we're to put what we say we believe into action, it seems, by looking at this text, that there is nothing that we shouldn't do to reconcile relationships. I mean, the text tells us to never take vengeance when we have the opportunity. To forgive endlessly because we've been forgiven endlessly. That seems like a lot. But to whom much is given, much is required, right? It's hard. It's a difficult task. It's a big challenge. But it's beautiful when you see it put into action. It's beautiful when you see it put into action. Recently, I made a new friend um, who is doing this work of reconciliation. He'd been out of, his, out of touch with his mother for years. They didn't have a relationship anymore. I forgot to ask how many years, but it's a large amount of time where he and his mother had not spoken. Completely out of touch. They hadn't even spoken in years. But recently, he had a conversion. He joined a local recovery group, started attending a church, and he got baptized. Became a new person. And so he decided to reach out to his mother, even though she didn't do anything to deserve it or merit it. He saw, because of what happened to him, the the work that God did to reach out to him as this super gracious, large act of love. And if that was done for him, then him reaching out to reconcile with his mother was no longer that big of a thing. And so the act of God's grace in his life enabled him to get over whatever hurt he had to reach out to his mother. And he told me the other week that he calls her every Sunday now. And they're slowly rebuilding that relationship. That's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. He's, because he chose to let go of, of hurt and pride, right? <clears throat> he chose to do what he could, like the text said, if possible, so far as it depends on you. In other words, by any means, live peaceably with all. 
And when you know that you have relationships that you need to reconcile, you should do that. There's a lot of us, there's a lot of people who are living in hostility with others, at enmity with others. Whether it's family relationships like that or, or old friends or coworkers who are out to get you. So the response then, according to Romans chapter 12, would be that we should do everything in our power to live at peace with others. Leave the judgment up to God. That doesn't work in every situation. We all know this. But in many situations, if we are the ones who are willing to humble ourselves, if we are the ones who are willing to apologize, if we are the ones who who are willing to ask for forgiveness and to forgive, that's, that's a powerful movement. You cannot underestimate the power of humility. It's one of the greatest tools, one of the greatest powers that we have in the Christian life. Again, as we talked about in 2 Corinthians, it's this upside-down set of values. Power is in weakness. Our strength is in our humility. Okay, so then third, what do we do about what it means to bring peace to the wider world as we engage with it? As a church family, when we come here together to worship, uh, we worship, we learn, we fellowship. Part of the reason for that is so that we can go back into the wider world around us and bring the joy of reconciliation and bring the peace of God to those that don't know him yet. This is part of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22, Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was. He said the first was to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But he said the second greatest commandment ever given was to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And it wouldn't be very loving, would it, if you knew the way to peace, if you knew the way to reconciliation, if you knew the way to ultimate joy and comfort in your life, and you didn't share that with someone. It just wouldn't be very loving. That is where we come to our charge as ministers of reconciliation. So what does it mean to be a minister of reconciliation? We're going to look at another text. And we're going to go back to 2 Corinthians. I know we just finished a whole series on that. But we're going to go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and see what it has to say. Because this is the definitive text on reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, starting verse 17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the text is saying in in the process of, of being born again, being made alive in Christ, not only are we a new creation, which is a whole other sermon series on its own, but we are entrusted immediately with the message of reconciliation. We are reconciled to be reconciling. We are given peace to be made peacemakers. And blessed are the peacemakers, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And we are sent back into the world as ambassadors then for Christ. So what does it mean to be an ambassador for Christ? Because that's literally what the text said several times. This is what we mean at Communion Church when we talk about the gathered church and the scattered church. Or more specifically, um, we talk about the first church, that's you and your family, the gathered church, that's us here this morning, and the scattered church, that's you Monday morning when you go back to your job, your school, your home, whatever it is. We look at those as a process. So when we come here or come together, that is the gathered church. We worship, we pray, we study, we lean on each other, we pray for each other, we support each other, but we are then sent back to our normal everyday lives as ambassadors of a different way. The church scattered among the wider community. The beauty of that is uh, that when you look around you on a Sunday morning, you see people from all different types of communities, jobs, positions, and cultures. We're all from different places. And that means that we bring the message that we've learned here, namely the gospel, into so many different spheres of our world. The word the text used, ambassador, is, is a perfect picture, I think, for what, what we're getting at here. Ambassadors are, are in a land that is not their own. They are in a, a country, a different kingdom than they belong to. They belong to a completely different kingdom. Now when they live, but they live peaceably, right, among that nation. And they are in, they bring, it, they bring peace to that nation. Like they bring a representation of a different society to that nation. To bring proper representation of their homeland. And that's how we need to look at it when we go back into our spheres. We are then ambassadors in a different country, in a different kingdom. Uh, ambassadors for a better land, with a better king. We should then, as we do that, though look different. There should be something that is different enough about us that, that people should at least recognize it. And when we manifest right, the, the fruits of the Spirit that we've been talking about, it should be something that is attractive to the people that we meet. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control, they're all things that anyone would consider good. They are a life well lived. There's something about that Christian life as we carry those things that, that gives us greater confidence, greater peace, greater love, greater joy. But that's not the end of our ambassadorship. That's not the full meaning. We're not just to be different. 
We're called to live differently for a purpose. And that is, back to verse 20, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We can't forget that the end goal uh, of all our life is to point out the good news of Jesus. That has to be our ultimate goal. Not to live a better life just for the sake of the good that it brings, although it does bring tangible good, doesn't it? It's just that there's something deeper, something more real, something truer that causes the fruit to grow and manifest in our lives. Something, I would argue, is supernatural. When Ephesians chapter 2 mentions Jesus as our peace, it said that he preached peace to those who were far off and preached peace to those who were near. I found it really interesting this week as I studied that word translated as preached there is literally proclaimed the gospel. So maybe a, a very literal translation of that would say, he taught the gospel, peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. The answer and the source of our being a peacemaker then in, in this world, in our spheres that we go back to, comes from our understanding of that gospel. You can't apply this until you understand that. You can't go out and become a reconciler until you understand that you've been reconciled. Once you understand that gospel, then you can bring it into your spheres. Our, our hope as elders for this church is in the coming years that we lean into the idea of, of this gathered and scattered church. We learn and we celebrate here, right? That, that equips us. It equips us for the work of ministry which is done outside of these walls. We don't want to be a church that creates more and more programs for the sake of, of pulling people in to our own little kingdom. We don't want to build a huge church we want to be the church. And that blesses our community. That blesses our employers. That blesses the schools that we go back to. Being the church in the wider community will take the gospel into all sorts of dark corners in our society. And that's how it's meant to be done. With that, we want to equip each other well so that we can go out into the different spheres that God has put us in and actually be a light to help the people in the world around us. That doesn't minimize the church as a vital part of your life. It actually makes the gathered church crucial. This is where you recharge your batteries. This is where we remind ourselves of God's gifts and support each other. With that, Sunday morning then actually becomes a bigger part of your week. And the more of yourself you spend in the world during the week, the more rejuvenating and the more you will need to be in worship and commune with your brothers and sisters. So my prayer is that we come here each week spent, that, that we come here each week hungry, that we've expended so much of ourselves into the world around us that we have to be here 
We have to worship and pray and, and huddle and lean on each other to recharge for the next week because we're going to do it again because that's what you're called to do. That's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons that we take communion every week. Now, we, we want to remember that as God never intended for us to eat once and never eat again, he gave us the gift of communion as a sacred element of the Christian life. This reminds us that we need to be refilled, but also in a very spiritual and real way fills us. We were built not just as animals. We were built as physical and spiritual creatures. That's how God made us. And I pray that as you come for communion today, you would take a moment just to reflect and, and feel, feel God pulling those strings back around you to tie you back together. That, that you would feel that, that the work that God has done to make you whole again. And as we come forward for communion, we remember that he gave of himself, his body, he gave his life, he gave his blood, he poured out, so making peace for you. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we are so thankful for the peace that you give. Uh, we are so thankful that the ideas that we have of these concepts are, are constantly being formed and renewed, uh, that the things that we jump to that we think are not even big enough, that you are a God who can give us more than we ask or think or imagine. Uh, and the peace that you give is far greater by any imagination than what we could imagine for ourselves. You give us more than just a, a peaceful moment of tranquility. You give us a wholeness that lasts for eternity. It's far more than we could ask. Lord, I just pray that you would hear us now, that you would be with us as we commune, uh, that you would hear us as we worship and pray, um, that we would be pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.